Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. I'm Rachel Wheelmouth. And I'm Rachel Cunliffe. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we talk about Labour's angst over strikes. And you ask us, how is Liz Truss's campaign going? So we've got a lot to talk about today and I'm really happy that all of us are in the studio for that. We've got a full house and we will get on to Liz Truss's first campaign stumble in the second section of the pod. But first of all, Labour's angst over strikes continues, doesn't it? Lisa Nandy, the shadow levelling up secretary, joined telecoms workers on the picket line in her constituency, Wigan, on Monday, helpfully just after we'd recorded our podcast that day. So we haven't had time to talk about that story, but she wasn't sacked, was she? Unlike Sam Tarry, the shadow transport minister or former shadow transport minister who who was, which we spoke about in the last episode. So, Rachel, I mean, you've been looking into this. What's the difference between those two people? I mean, is it that she was with BT workers who, you know, who are working for a private company? Is it different from rail workers? What's going on here? Well, it's a bit, it seems on the surface of it, a bit sort of one rule for Sam Terry, one rule for everyone else. Um, but, but... Sam Terry was supposed to have been sacked basically for making an unauthorised media interview and then making up policy on the hoof, which was that he believed that workers should get a pay rise in line with inflation or, or a pay rise above above inflation. Mm-hmm. The reason it seems to be different, although the, the radio silence from the Labour press team is notable in this case. <laughs> they're on strike too. <laughs> they're kind of on strike too, <laughs> is that she basically got permission from Keir Starmer before going, to, well, well, not permission from Keir Starmer himself, but she notified the leader of the opposition's office and said, I'm going to be doing this as a courtesy. I'll let you know. And she didn't make up any new policy while she was there, which also seems to have helped her case. But there still seems to be no definite line from the Labour Party as to whether front benches are allowed to join picket lines or not. And it seems like that will be sorted out when Keir Starmer eventually comes back from holiday on, I think, it's August 15th. So, right. So God knows what chaos will ensue God, between imagine, then and Imagine now. his inbox. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> imagine if he wasn't checking emails in that time. <laughs> no. um, I'm sure he was. But yes, it is, you know, this is quite spurious, isn't it? This, oh, someone did a rogue media round, therefore they should be sacked. Most of the time, ministers and shadow ministers won't necessarily be sacked for, for freelancing on, on media rounds. I was looking into this, you know, the fact that he was punished because of that one thing, whereas she'd warned them in advance, so she wasn't, you know, 
I don't think that logic is even washing within Starmer's office. I've heard from one source who described the last couple of weeks as a mess, yes. basically. So it is a mess. And what, what Nandi's action has exposed is that there are divided opinions in the shadow cabinet over whether or not they should be seen to be supporting strikes. And she obviously has the view that she ought to be going and, and supporting striking workers in her constituency. And yes. she is close to the Communication Workers Union as well. Yes, but I think there are some, some differences. I, I guess people within the Leaders Office would probably say the RMT is not an affiliated union, yeah. which makes a difference. This this was a, a strike in Lisa Nandy's constituency, the one that Sam Terry joined, the picket line rather, that Sam Terry joined wasn't. It was in, in Euston some, some way away. So there are sort of subtle differences, which the Leaders Office will be very keen to sort of draw a line underneath but there's also a lot of background to it as in the Sam Terry doesn't have the best relationship with Keir Starmer's office I think yeah there's also there's some background to it as in that he's facing deselection in Ilford South where he's an MP and he's so far you know he's lost the battle for an open selection so he's going to be facing this big selection race and a lot of people who sort of feel quite hostile towards Sam Terry will say this is more about raising his profile and making the unions and some of his supporters within the constituency who will vote for him when he faces an open selection between him and another candidate this kind of boosts his profile helps him to campaign locally as well so a cynic would say yeah yeah. (laughs) and we spoke about this in depth didn't we in the last episode of the New Statesman podcast so if anyone didn't listen to that go back and listen because we've spoken a lot about the context of sort of Sam Tarry and his place in the party. But, you know, there was fury over his sacking from the unions and that hasn't really died down. Freddie, you spoke to Mick Lynch, the rail union boss on Monday as well, didn't you? What's what's he saying? Is he is he furious with Labour? Well, I think the way that he spoke about Keir Starmer sort of swung between contempt and indifference. Um, so <laughs> he, he wasn't that friendly about him. But I don't actually think, interestingly, that their positions are that far apart from each other. I just want to read a quote of one thing that Lynch said. I don't care if Keir Starmer comes on a picket line, but what he's not doing is saying he supports us. So he sort of takes the view that it's not for the Labour front benches necessarily to go onto the picket line. Unions, who should be the focus of fighting for working class pay rises and going into working class communities, he sees the Labour Party and the unions as very separate, in part because the RMT isn't affiliated, but also just how he thinks the unions should progress into the 21st century. But the other thing that was interesting about that is that he wanted to see Labour promise more money for the public sector bodies so that they could provide pay settlements. Because at the moment, when we get the pay review bodies coming back, say for the NHS, they will have to either agree or disagree to that pay review out of their own budget. So Lynch was saying we need Labour to commit to extra funding so that the public bodies can provide extra money to the workers without drawing out of their initial budget, which I thought was interesting. I don't think has been uh, addressed elsewhere. But yeah, I mean, the key thing was that he saw the unions and the Labour Party as very, very separate. And he thought they performed different functions in politics at the moment. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because that's that is the pragmatic line that Labour leaders, you know, for years past have tried to take. I was speaking to a union source who was saying this. There's a lot of sort of leverage that unions give the Labour leadership because they know they can't be seen to be, you know, disrupting vital services. But they also know that they have to, you know, at least support them, but from behind the scenes. So they're not expecting them to go on picket lines and do this full throated support. There's always been that divide. And the unions have sort of a very long degree of understanding about that and the politics of it. Yeah, I think it's probably worth pointing out this time that Labour does have a pay policy and that's for, for it to be worked out 
as individual negotiations, you know, right. on a case a case by case basis between the people negotiating. But I think the impatience with people in, in the labour movement is that anything below inflation at this point, and can, given the level that inflation's at, everything's going to be a pay cut essentially. But then Labour, which is trying to win a general election is saying we can't back every inflation busting pay rise out of the public purse because that's going to leave them open to attack so it's a very difficult position for Keir Starmer but I think the more interesting point that Freddie was touching on there was kind of like the link between Labour and the unions Mm. it isn't the same as it was once upon a time but I think sort of it's it's important culturally for the Labour Party and a lot of people kind of feel that Keir Starmer is not of the trade union movement or of the labour movement. And that that means he hasn't built up as much credit as somebody like Lisa Nandy, who just feels it in her bones. I think people in the trade union movement sense that and are suspicious of it. Yeah, completely. And I think that's why these things aren't just about policy. It's not just about what Labour thinks about incomes. It's about the cultural side of things. Hence, you get such visceral anger in reaction to the the sacking of Sam Tai, for instance. It's much more about how they actually think Keir Starmer relates to working class people and also to the trade unions in, in general. You hear that a lot, actually, from people around the Labour Party, that he's not particularly political, or even sometimes that he doesn't have politics at all. And so I suppose that gives him less leeway than, say, Ed Miliband or Jeremy Corbyn or anyone before him would have had with trying to keep the unions or at least the Labour's sort of public interaction with the unions at an arm's length. He has he has sort of less leeway to do that because of that history. But Rachel, you know, there's going to be more strikes, aren't there? I mean, we know that energy bills are going to go up to, some forecasts say, on average £3,400 by October, which is, to be honest, anything we talk about on this podcast is going to be dwarfed by that. That is the reality for everyone around the corner. So, you know, it's very natural that people would want to be paid more and need to be paid more. I mean, can Labour's uh, sort of ambiguity on this be sustained throughout such a summer? Uh, I'm the other Rachel, by the way, just because we've got two Rachels on this podcast. It's really difficult. And I think from a PR perspective, Keir Starmer is in a really challenging position because the rail strikes in particular are not popular among the general public. And they're not popular partly because rail is one of those areas that could cause massive, massive disruption. People can't get to work. Children can't get to school. The last set of them were, were during GCSE exams. And so they really have the potential to disrupt all ordinary people's lives, ordinary people who themselves are facing the same energy bills and the same cost of living crisis, but they are not getting a pay rise or they're not uh, in line to get a pay rise. And it's a very sort of easy dividing line. You know, these people are messing up your life because they want this thing that you can't have. It's a, it's very divisive. And the problem, we've had a Conservative government for, for 12 years, but the Tories, I think, actually did a really good job with the rail strikes of going, yeah, nothing to do with us. They're Labour strikes. And you're like, they're not Labour strikes. Labour hasn't been in power for over a decade. These are strikes about circumstances that are the result of successive Conservative governments but because one Labour has close ties to the union and two some Labour figures decided to to moonlight and go join picket lines that line of attack worked so I'm not necessarily defending the sort of Keir Starmer position but I can see very clearly why he wouldn't want people to go join picket lines regardless of what his politics are because it makes Labour look really really bad and the point that the other Rachel who at home looking at now <laughs> was, was just making about Labour can't back every inflation busting pay rise that is a real issue because any pay rise that public sector workers get is going to be paid for by the salaries of other workers who aren't getting a pay rise who are facing the the same cost of living crisis and 
that's a very easy narrative to spin as it's not fair. And one last sort of defence of, of sacking Sam Tarry and, and, and not <laughs> not Lisa Nandy. Some very good points made about the different types of union and whether she got permission or not. But also he promoted himself sort of li- <laughs> live on air. He said he was shadow transport secretary and, and he isn't. And he made up policy doing that. And I think for that alone, he should have been sacked. I just want to push back on a few of those points. I don't think, for instance, that the way that the public view that the railway strikes has been completely negative, and I don't think that people struggling with the cost of living means that they are going to see other people as trying to get more when they don't have it. I think lots of people have a sense of solidarity with the strikes because they can see that the union are trying to defend workers' rights and, and pay which other people don't have and, and perhaps want. And then the other thing as well is that if we're going through the summer and we see, for instance, nurses or postal services go on strike, that public sympathy is only going to increase. I mean, you saw the uproar at Liz Truss's policy, which was framed as cutting pay for nurses in the north. That uproar, it just prefigures what could happen in the future. We do see pay cuts to nurses and we do see the strikes. There is a lot of solidarity with people on picket lines at the moment. Yeah, and other Rachel, you wanted to come in as well. Okay. First, I, I, first Rachel. Yeah, Rachel W. <laughs> I think the first point I would make is that, yes, yeah, support for strikes does seem high and could get higher, but I think there are points at which that could plummet if there's an awful lot of disruption, if people's lives, are, if Bundan people's lives get damaged in some way, I think that, that, that could change. It's a really careful balance for a Labour Party leader in particular mm. to be in the right spot on it. I also think it's interesting that a lot of the language around some of the clashes that will come at party conference for Keir Starmer is, you know, his team would say we can't go for every inflation bust in pay rise and there are other people who are quite hostile towards him who feel like they want you know momentum in particular who said they're mm-hmm. going to put forward a lot of motions for inflation proof pay rises and you know and then the RMT are asking for eight percent and that's but that's below inflation mm-hmm. at the minute and mm-hmm. Sam Terry got up and said that everyone should get inflation pay rises and I think so that's another reason why he's in a different place to where a lot of people are but I think it's in both some people on the left interest to keep it vague and for Keir Starmer's team to keep it vague so because they might land in a, a different place and it's just no no one can quite get to what they think is reasonable at the minute and then there's obviously as well apart from all this different types of worker there's some of the lowest lowest paid in an organization to some of the highest managerial staff who probably already be getting quite a pretty good deal so it's not as simple as some people are making it out to be at this point and I think although there's going to be a lot of clashes at a party conference over it, there are many more nuanced positions on pay in between Mm. one end and the other. Yeah, and the benefit for Labour having this line that you laid out very articulately earlier, which is sort of we'll leave it to the negotiators to sort that out, is that they can then say, well, the government's not stepping in. You know, the government's not sorting it out. The government's sort of creating these this conflict, which they tried to do over the rail strikes. And, you know, when I spoke to Wes Treating about potential NHS strikes, he, he used the same line. So that's the line that they're sticking to. I guess the mess, which I quoted from someone in Starmer's office, comes in when you know they look like they don't know whether or not they're going to punish their own shadow cabinet ministers and overjoining workers or not. You know, that just looks like they don't have a consistent line. And I think one thing that Keir Starmer one of his vulnerabilities in terms of public opinion is that he does look like a fence sitter. So it's, you know, it adds to that image, I think. Yeah, I think for, for people within Labour as well, it's like over the last few years, the Labour Party itself has gone on a cost-cutting mission, so it's lost some of its own staff. So some of those relationships are quite, you know, frayed. It is the fact that there are some people, and there, but there are a minority around Keir Starmer who don't like the trade union link. And that is sort of getting people's backs up on the other side. So 
there's a lot going on. Maybe that's why the press office aren't getting back to you. No one working there anymore. Can I just say a point on the press office? I prepare nothing to do with strikes, but it took me three and a half years to get the direct number for the Labour press office. Nobody wants to give it to you. It used to be the case every time you called the number on the website, you got kind of put through or you had to like leave a voicemail and they'd call you back. And finally, I got it and I had it written on a post-it note up on my computer. And weekly, somebody would email me and be like, do you have that secret number for the Labour press office? Maybe it's better now. But it, it used to be incredibly difficult to get in touch with them. To be fair, it's a, it's a, it's a government press offices where you have to ring and leave a message with like like a switchboardy type yeah, thing. Yeah, and then yeah. they type the message and send it as a text to the off-duty press office. For, for, that kind of just feels like... 1980s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just tweet them. Maybe they'll get back if you tweet them publicly. Yeah. At Labour Press Office. Why are you not responding? Yeah. Well, that is a very good segue into our next section, Rachel. Thank you. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical, and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search... Audio long reads from the New Statesman, wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Ask Us. Us. So we have a question from Liam. Thanks for writing in, Liam. Liz Truss said in the BBC debate she deleted Twitter from her phone. What does this say about her campaign and her communication and presentation style? So 
Yes, this refers to Liz Truss, one of the Tory leadership candidates, saying during the BBC debate when she was asked about that Nadine Doris tweet about the price of her earrings compared with the price of uh, Rishi Sunak's clothes, that she deleted Twitter from my phone for the campaign. Now, I don't know whether this means that she's stopped looking at Twitter altogether. I've asked her SPAD. I've asked her campaign team. They haven't told me. So There's maybe a theme here, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe I should ring the Labour press office. They have the answer to that. But yes, I, I don't know whether that means that she's stopped sort of looking at politics through the, through a Twitter lens, but it is an interesting question. And I think you'll all remember from Boris Johnson's, I think, last PMQs, although he kind of had two last PMQs, didn't he? Where he, he said he some- forgot about the second yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> he said something like, uh, remember, above all, it's not Twitter that counts, it's the people who sent us here. So obviously that sort of conversation about how much politicians should be using Twitter and framing the way that they speak through what's going on on Twitter is, is a live debate. Rachel, I mean, you, you use Twitter a lot. I'm sure our listeners won't <laughs> disagree with me and you won't mind me saying. Do you think it's a problem in terms of how our politics is done? It's definitely a problem in terms of my productivity. <laughs> Uh, when I saw that she deleted Twitter off her phone, part of me was like, you're the foreign secretary. Why do you have Twitter on your phone in the first place? <laughs> and I remember, I mean, it, it shows how quickly technology has come on, but Tony Blair never had a mobile phone when he was prime minister and any calls that he wanted to make were done through aides and his diary secretary or whatever and they always knew who they were talking to uh, and there were big problems when Gordon Brown became Prime Minister because he had had a mobile phone beforehand and all the Downing Street staff wanted to take it off him because they wanted that formality of we know who the Prime Minister is talking to at any one time and you know he was used to communicating in a different way. If you think about it now I mean Boris Johnson's personal phone number was listed on like a publicly available <laughs> website and that, that came out I think about a year ago. It, it doesn't make sense for, for government or, or democracy that anyone could be texting the Prime Minister at any time and he could be promising things and his aides don't know about it and the staff don't know about it and is he meeting with a Russian KGB agent or <laughs> Or not. I mean, all of that is a much, it's not about Liz Truss, it's a much wider question about if you are in a position of huge power, should you actually take more care over your communications and make sure there are records of things? And I'm not advocating for anyone who's a MP or a government minister having their phone taken away from them. But I think there sort of are questions. What happens if Liz Truss is the foreign secretary and sort of scrolls down and likes something and it turns out that it's by a journalist that a foreign government has Mm. sanctioned in some way and it could cause a diplomatic incident? There are lots and lots of questions about that. The thing is though, Liz Truss has a brilliant Twitter game, or at least she she used to. I was going back through my old tweets and from about five years ago, somebody tweeted which politician has the best Twitter game and I responded, like it's obviously Ruth Davidson or, or Liz Truss. So clearly I was a big fan. I can't remember what it was she used to tweet. But I do remember that she was quite engaged and she has a good social media game in general. She used to be quite good on Instagram. There was a great picture that she posted on Instagram of her in the House of Commons in a quite ornate chair with a big fluffy white cat on her lap that was clearly a, ah, Mr Bond, I've been expecting you kind of illusion. (laughs) Like, she was quite fun. The problem with being quite fun is that, you know, it doesn't necessarily align well with being statesmanlike and I think sort of in this campaign somebody has probably told her that the risks are too great the chances of you liking something or getting into a spat that actually makes you look non-prime ministerial are, are too high that's what I think has probably happened yeah well I think her first tweet when she sort of declared that she was running 
what did it say? Did it say something like she hit the ground? Hit the ground. Oh, hit yeah, the ground rather than hit the ground hit, running. Full stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder if she might have deleted it after that. I don't think that was that big of a deal. I think everyone knows, you know, hit the ground, hit the ground running. People knew what she meant. I think there were other things that she'd done since that are far <laughs> Yeah, we will get onto worse. that. We will get onto that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what Boris Johnson was saying about Twitter, he was basically trying to warn politicians against being swayed by the narrative or the consensus that forms on that platform because so few people use it and it's such a small unrepresentative percentage of the country and it's better to try and listen to what's out there than in the bubble but actually there was an interesting piece by Cleo Watson who was a senior aide in Downing Street in Tatler recently where she actually said there was a screen in number 10 at least during the Covid times which was a Twitter word bubble to see what people out there were talking about so that's interesting you know Boris Johnson saying it's not about Twitter but actually sort of being a slave to the the Twitter word bubble. All all of these statements from from politicians saying oh you know Britain isn't Twitter, stay away from it. All of it's kind of just, just an acknowledgement that they know that it matters and they know that that's how people communicate now and where they find out what's important to people. So I kind of people talk it down, pretend it doesn't matter, pretend it's trivial, but they're all they're all watching you. They're all, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've had quite text about my tweets from from people from different parties saying, what does this mean? And getting worried about it. You know, yeah. it matters to them. They notice in the kind of, if it raises a question on, on an area that they're worried about, they won't just dismiss it as, well, that's just Twitter, you know, they'll they'll be in touch and, and question you about it. It's, yeah. I think part of the thing is as well that Twitter is very unrepresentative and it is one of the smaller social media networks, or at least of the big ones, it's the smallest. However, it's where all the political journalists come to hang out. So something might not be seen by very many people on Twitter, but it will be seen by a lot of political journalists. And what are they going to do? Guess what? They're going to write it up in their papers and then it's going to become more of a story. And I think one thing that we've I've certainly noticed is that a story will break on Twitter and then five days later, my mum will text me about it, having read it in a newspaper or <laughs> seen it on the BBC or like maybe it's turned up in her Facebook feed so it does feed through it just it just takes time I'm, I'm sorry mum if you're listening <laughs> yeah get with the times Rachel's mum <laughs> um, so one thing that was going around Twitter actually which sort of links to the second half of Liam's question which was about Liz Truss's communication of her campaign was the press release which announced her regional pay boards policy which she then completely scrapped I think less than 12 hours later is that right yeah I think it's about 14 14 14 hours hours later okay so Freddie can you take us through this what was the policy that she was proposing and then why did she u-turn on it and Mm. and then who was she blaming I would just say it was also very very tricky to get this press release from the (laughs) press routine well first of all they sort of this was designed to try and reduce Whitehall spending. So the idea was to introduce regional pay boards, which would differentiate civil servant pay around the region. So say, you know, the cost of living is lower in certain parts of the UK, especially compared to London and the southeast. You could be able to offer lower pay for the civil servants there. Mm-hmm. Now, lots of the confusion came from a really poorly worded pe- press release, which sort of insinuated that this would then be rolled out to the rest of the public sector, because that was the only way by which you could actually tot up the sums that they provided. Which means that they were basically suggesting that in the future, nurses, for instance, in, in uh, parts of the country, say in, in the north or the southwest, where there's a lower cost of living, would be paid less than those in London, which in effect is a, is a, a pay cut for those nurses. So hence, there was such uproar, hence it, uh, there was a quick turnaround on it. So well, I, I think the damage was limited by how swiftly they did U-turn. It didn't become a mass- massive national story. I don't think it was comparable, for instance, to the dementia tax 
debate during the 2017 election. Uh, but I do think it demonstrated that some on Liz Truss's team are way too focused on the party membership and are forgetting that if or when she does become prime minister, she's going to have to govern for at least two years and then she's going to have to go to the country and try and tell them what she's done in those two years. And at the moment, she's so focused on winning over a, a low tax, more right wing membership that she's forgetting that. Yeah, and I think you're right about it. You know, I think they, although it looked like a mess to us on Twitter, I think you're right that the damage control was probably quite swift and quite efficient because I was in Beaconsfield, the biggest Tory association in the country, speaking to Tory members who, like you say, this kind of policy is pitched towards, which is essentially shrinking the state. And they barely heard about it, you know, and it was, you know, breaking that day. There were one or two mentions which were sort of, they were kind of equivocal about it. You know, they were saying that it wasn't necessarily the best look but also, you know, it made sense in terms of the economy. So, but yeah, I think you're right that it didn't particularly cut through. And actually, we did have a new YouGov poll of Tory members, which showed Liz Truss on 69% to Rishi Sunak's 31%. So she's evidently still the front runner if the polling is to be believed. And YouGov has, has a good track record with polling Tory members. But Liz Truss did try and sort of blame the media or Rishi Sunak's team for sort of misrepresenting the policy that she was trying to communicate, didn't she, Rachel? Yeah, she sent out a clarification of her press release that said the way it had been reported was willful misrepresentation was the phrase used. And I've heard people like Brandon Lewis, who is one of her supporters, saying that the thing that was misrepresented was there were a couple of tweets from trade unions and the press release from the Rishi Sunak campaign that kind of hinted that maybe the pay cuts were going to be immediate. And to her credit, the original policy did say in the long term. However, broadly, it was reported accurately. And the fact that Freddie made, you can't make the savings. I mean, you probably can't make the savings that she outlined anyway, whatever you do. But you certainly can't make the savings. The headline figure was savings of £11 billion without doing it for all public sector workers everywhere. So that was fair representation and it was accurate. And she's now going on saying it was never the policy. They've said that regional pay boards, it's not that they've been scrapped, it's that they were never going to be on the, on the cards anyway. And I've actually written about this for the New Statesman website this week. We talked about it on this podcast about how Liz Truss is sort of channeling Margaret Thatcher, which obviously she's trying to do. But actually, this is straight from the Boris Johnson playbook. You know, something happens, it gets criticised and you go, nope, never happened. But we've got evidence of it happening. Nope, nope, media, media, you know, dark forces, nothing to do with us totally misrepresented. And if you do that, you don't have to apologise or explain. Um, And I think maybe that's why it hasn't become more of a story outside of the politics Twitter bubble is because she just denied it ever happened, which is sort of quite weird, but also quite effective. And then just very quickly in terms of how they got there in the first place, I think these figures came from a report from the Taxpayers Alliance, which is a right wing think tank. And they are always putting out reports that say you could save X billion by doing this or X, Y, Z. And I'm sure that if you talk to the people who work on their reports, they can show you they're working. But they're not always necessarily grounded in pragmatic political reality. And I think what happened is they just, she got sent it by the TPA and her team sort of copied it and pasted it. And they didn't stop to think about what it was actually saying and what the implications were. Yes, I think that's true. And what was interesting actually from talking to Tory members is that it felt a lot more split, the support for Truss v Sunak. And lots of them hadn't made up their minds yet. But one thing that they all said was one of their most important qualities that they want in the next leader is someone who can win a general election. And 
this kind of mishap, Rachel, you, you've done a bit of work on whether or not Labour would like to face Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak ideally in a general election. This sort of mishap that suggests that you'd be cutting the pay of nurses, for example, you know, one of those jobs that there's a lot of public sympathy for, suggests that, you know, she might not necessarily be that choice in terms of who could be an election winner. Yes, and I don't understand why she's not facing more scrutiny over her economic plans in particular. You know, if you want to scrap the national insurance rise, then how are you going to pay for the NHS backlogs? Mm. And similarly, her line on the economy seems to graduate, or she kind of seemed to slip and change policy last night and she's outsourcing her her ideas to Taxpayers Alliance. It looks looks very chaotic, but I, I think some of these things aren't catching on as stories because a lot of the media narrative around Rishi Sunak is that he's not really a prospect. So there's not really, it's not really a contest. It's not really a game. And I don't know how he kind of, how he recaptures any kind of traction really. But it's interesting that you went to see Conservative Party members and they are still very split because there's been the odd poll where they look closer. And you have to wonder, you know. Well, it did did feel like why Why she is so... You know, 34 points, I think, one poll put her ahead. But looking at the contest, I would wonder just why they're so far apart. Yes. And even from people who I spoke to who were going to vote for her, and actually their ballot papers were supposed to be sent out for them that day, but um, there's been a bit of a delay in terms of the security of the voting. So they haven't had them yet. But even the ones who were supporting her were saying it's, it feels closer than we would like. So we'll keep a closer eye on that. But thank you, everyone, for joining me. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Rachel Wearmouth, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Cunliffe. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to leave us a nice review. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.